everyone, you're tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots, aka me, your host. And my guest today is Vijay Prashad, Executive Director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, Chief Editor of Leftward Books, and an author of many, many, many incredible books. Thanks for being on the show, Vijay. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Vijay, I want to, you know, I think you're someone that has like written so much on so many historical movements and you offer so much historical context. And as we go into over a hundred days of this active genocide on the Palestinian people by the Israeli Zionist regime, I'm, I'm realizing kind of in the discourse that a lot of Americans, while we are reckoning with sort of the interest that the U.S. actually has, it's clear a lot of people are waking up to that, but many Americans are also lacking a lot of context on the region and context on different formations, political groups, and sort of resistance movements. And I feel like that became really obvious in October 7th, where even, you know, your sort of quote-unquote progressive people started their captions or their statements with condemning Hamas. So I want to I sort of open that up because I'm curious from your perspective, kind of what are, you know, what are some of the things we should keep in mind as Americans as we begin to hear more of these different factions and sort of revolutionary groups um, in the region? Well, first, it's great to be with you. So thanks a lot for, for thinking of me uh, for our conversation. You know, on this issue, the issue of Palestine, Israel, and so on, the question that you have to always start with is where to begin. You know, um, where do we start? Do we start on, say, October 7th? Do we start on in 2019? Do we go back to 1948 when Israel was founded and the Palestinians were expelled from their homeland? Do we start from 1936, the big uprising in Palestine against the colonization of Palestinian lands by outsiders? Do we start in 1917 at the Balfour Declaration when the British imperialists basically a sight unseen gave Palestine um, to Jews from Europe who were experiencing anti-Semitism in Europe? I mean, in a way, what the British imperialists were doing is saying, look, we don't want to uh, incorporate the Jewish population in Europe into Europe, but we want to export you um, to Palestine. In other words, we'll export our own racism and anti-Semitism uh, somewhere else and make it somebody else's problem. I mean, at the core of the issue being dealt with now in Palestine is the history, the long and ugly history of European anti-Semitism, which the Europeans have never really come to terms with. You know, it's easy for Germany today to say we stand with Israel, but where was Germany? you know, for 70, 80 years when it persecuted its own Jewish population, including the Holocaust of not just German, but European Jews, uh, the murder of six million people and so on. That was a European problem, not an Arab problem. Why do I say that? Because in historical Palestine, there has always been, there have always been Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Muslims and Palestinian Jews there was a Jewish population in Palestine that considered themselves Palestinian. Um, it's when European Jews start to be sent, expelled from Europe 
to Palestine uh, in the period of the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, that it provokes problems, not only for Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims, but also Palestinian Jews are, you know, distressed by this new change, this demographic change being imposed on the region by the imperialists. And that then um, takes on a catastrophic moment in 1948. And in fact, I use the word catastrophic. That comes from a book by the Lebanese historian Constantine Zorayak, um, where he describes what happens to Palestinians in 1948 as the Nakba, the catastrophe. Um, you know, that's the history. It's a long history. And from the 1930s, at least, Palestinians, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Armenians, and others have struggled against this imposition of people by imperialism onto their land. They've struggled in various ways. They've struggled civil unrest, for instance, um, you know, marches, protests of different kinds, completely nonviolent. They've struggled uh, to build uh, political alternatives, you know, political parties and so on. And when these nonviolent approaches were shut down, they took to armed violence. I mean, th this is what's important is it's not like armed violence is the beginning and end of, of the Palestinian struggle. Even recently, in, in 2005, 2006, the Palestinian groups had an election where they um, you know, went before the Palestinian people to create a governing authority in Gaza. That election was won by Hamas, which was only founded in 1987, not in 1948. And when Hamas won the election, the West and the Israelis said, we won't allow you to take office. Um, so they shut down the route of democratic elections. Then in 2019, when you know thousands of Palestinians marched peacefully towards the perimeter fence that um, holds in 2 million Palestinians in the small area of Gaza, Israeli snipers from the Israeli military shot at these unarmed Palestinians, killing many of them. It's not as if Palestinians have not used nonviolence, but they've always been met by violence. Violence has been imposed on them in two different ways. One, the colonial structure of violence, hemming in people, the you know apartheid wall, the illegal settlements, the indignity of the checkpoint and so on. That's the colonial structure of violence. But also the actual act of violence by the Israeli military against the Palestinians. If you read Franz Fanon's book, wretched of the earth, you'll understand in the first chapter called Concerning Violence, that the colonized respond violently only when there are no other options placed on them. And they respond violently when um, a structure of violence that imposed upon them creates anger um, because of the inability uh, of people to act in other ways. So, you know, those who think history begins on October 7th uh, are missing a lot of context, but also they are missing the point. Um, October 7th was part of a very long history, not an isolated event. And even that event has been uh, a victim of disinformation. You know, all kinds of false claims being made about babies being decapitated and so on. Now, all of them almost largely debunked. So there it is, you know, there is where we are sort of 
at a point where we don't know how to talk about these things because so much is denied from the conversation. Yeah. Oof. I mean, it's it's exactly that. And I think that that's what feels difficult, especially in the West, right, where we have just historical amnesia like nobody else in the world. And at the same time, I, I see so many Americans feeling so entitled to an opinion and, and feeling like, you know, it, it's almost funny. Everyone wants to be a sort of spokesperson. And it's, you know, these really misinformed opinions and and hot takes that really make no sense and you know Vijay I'm curious uh, for you like now that it's become obvious that Israel is incapable of defeating Hamas and incapable of meeting its military objectives and they're now expanding sort of in a in more of a regional war and and we're seeing that of course in Lebanon and we're seeing the involvement of other countries. And I think I fear that similarly to October 7th and everyone rushing to condemn Hamas, we're going to see the same with, with groups like Hezbollah, for example, in Lebanon. What are some things that come to mind for you now that it's more of a regional um, war and things that we should keep in mind in the West as we see this these news unfolding? Well, you know, this has been a regional war since at least 1948, when the Israeli state, the new Israeli state, expelled Palestinians. Um, many Palestinians went as refugees to Gaza, to Egypt, to the Gulf countries, but large numbers went to Jordan and Lebanon. And they regrouped there. They built um, the Palestinian factions, what are called the factions, the, and I'll tell you why they're called factions in a minute. They built groups like Al-Fatah, they built the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, and so on. These were mainly left-wing, left-nationalist outfits. There was no real Islamist um, tradition in the Palestinian factions after 1948. And these factions come together to form the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. The PLO is basically the umbrella group of the different factions. That's why we call them factions. They are factions of the PLO, which is the umbrella group. Um, and the PLO, again, tried to go to the UN, civil action. When all of these doors were closed, it opened up an arms struggle, initially from Jordan. Uh, and from Lebanon, but mainly Jordan, from the camps in Jordan, uh, which is why I say this has always been a regional conflict. Then in Jordan, um, there was a lot of pressure on the monarchy to shut down the camps. And there was a fight between the Jordanian monarchy backed by the Israelis in the West to eradicate the Palestinians from there. That was known as Black September in 1970. And many of the Palestinian armed groups then decamped and went to Lebanon. Well, what happens next um, is interesting because here we get a sense of what the Israeli ambition has been regarding Palestinian politics. Basically, having rid um, the Jordanian territory of the Palestinian political groups, the Israelis then chased them to, um, to Lebanon and including in 1982, Israel invades Lebanon. Um, Lebanon has never 
recognize the state of Israel. But this invasion took it to a different level. And, you know, when they invaded Lebanon in 1982, the Israelis really destroyed large parts of Beirut fighting against the Palestinian factions, not only Beirut, but down the coastline in Saida and other cities. They really went into the refugee camps. At the time, there was a horrible massacre conducted at the camp of Sabra and Shatila, which is um, toward the eastern part of the city of Beirut. Um, it was due to the Israeli military violence against the Palestinians in Lebanon that the PLO had to then leave uh, and go to Tunisia. Um, you know, in other words, the Israelis have chased the Palestinians and the attitude has been that Palestinians must not have politics. This is what uh, an Israeli sociologist, Baruch Kimmeling, called politicide. The attempt to, in a sense, kill off the possibility of Palestinian politics. But, you know, you can't because there are these people called the Palestinians and they're going to keep fighting because their dignity is on the line. Um, you know, no emancipation movement can be easily killed off. It keeps returning um, because people continue to fight for their dignity. They don't allow themselves to be erased, to be suffocated, to be vanished from world history. I mean, we've seen this over and over again. Um, it's not going to happen. In this case, um, the Israelis said, oh, we're going to go after Hamas. Now, this is interesting. Having chased out the Palestinian left-wing factions, largely chased them out to Tunisia, and then, you know, gone after them through systematic assassination in Jordan and Lebanon, including the very great Palestinian journalist Ghassan Kanafani, killed in Lebanon, age 36, and so on. These are people of the left. Having created a kind of vacuum in the camps, the Israelis, in fact, encouraged the creation of Islamist formations inside the camp. And it's these Islamist formations in 1987 that become the Islamic resistance movement or Hamas. I mean, Hamas is in many ways, and I don't want to exaggerate this point, but in many ways, Hamas is a creature of Israeli policy. Um, it doesn't emerge organically out of the camps because even today, who's sitting as political prisoners in jail? It's the leadership of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the, the persecution of Khalida Jarrar. I mean, every time she is released from prison, they rearrest her. And they, they put the left in prison and then they leave the field open for groups like Hamas and then they complain about the existence of Hamas. So very clever politics by the Israelis. So when they say, oh, we are going to eradicate Hamas, how are you going to do that? Since at least um, the early 2000s, Hamas has um, you know, incorporated itself into the life of the people of Gaza. Um, you know, it, it, is a, it is a community organization. It's rooted itself. Armed struggle is only one part of it. Um, it's also a relief agency. It's an everyday kind of agency for people to appeal to for various uh, things since there's no real government there. It has become a de facto governing authority. Um, so how are you going to eradicate Hamas? So in that sense, those Israeli high officials who in using genocidal language say things like we're going to do a Gaza Nakba, the Gaza catastrophe, we're going to get rid of all the Palestinians. In one respect, they are correct because you can't 
isolate Hamas right now from the people of Gaza. You know, the Palestinians in Gaza uh, have, you know, their, many of the institutions have grown up around Hamas because no other politics was permitted by the Israelis. And I think that's, that's the interesting thing. So for people to say, oh, Hamas is a terrorist organization. Well, I mean, what does that mean, really? You know, what does it mean to call a group a terrorist organization? They are conducting an armed struggle for emancipation. Um, you know, there are other factions that are that are involved in various forms of armed struggle, including the Popular Front, Democratic Front, and so on. Um, it is interesting that even those groups are called terrorist organizations by the Israelis. So it has really nothing to do with the designation terrorist organization has nothing to do with the Islamism of Hamas or their particular ideology. It has to do with the fact that they are Palestinians who are developing a politics um, that is a politics of um, emancipation for their people. And since all roads are closed to them, they are with the armed struggle. So will this be a regional conflict? It, it, it has already been a regional conflict since at least 1948. Hezbollah, for instance, emerged in Lebanon um, to fight against the Israeli occupation of Lebanon from 1982. That was the origin of Hezbollah. Hezbollah didn't emerge from any other place. It's not, as it's sometimes called, an Iranian proxy. It's an ally of Iran, but it's not a proxy. It developed out of the movement inside Lebanon to fight against the Israeli occupation of that country after 1982. So Hezbollah has always been, um, in a sense, at war with Israel has always been and in fact in southern lebanon the uh, barrier region with israel hezbollah is the principal military force there that engages the israelis on the perimeter fence um so you know um i i feel like what we're saying is not will this become a regional conflict but will it uh, escalate into much more violence and war i hope not frankly but i think some of it uh, is is already happening. I mean, the United States is playing a very peculiar game. On the one side, high officials of the U.S. keep saying, we don't want this to escalate, but they continue to escalate it. I mean, if they don't want to escalate, then why did they uh, bomb targets, uh, you know, in Syria? If they don't want it to escalate, why did they bomb Yemen? You know, why not open a channel of negotiation with Ansar Allah in Yemen? Why bomb Yemen? Uh, why not open a channel of communication with the Iranians? Well, they don't want to talk to anybody because they are, in a sense, uh, in a position where they are saying it's a wholesale attack on, on, on Gaza and the Palestinians. Well, maybe too many civilians are dying, but we back Israel all the way. So, yeah, the problem is, will this conflict escalate? I think it will. Who is the author of that escalation? I think it's the United States government. Yeah, and, and I appreciate that sort of distinction because it is true, of course. Like, it's been a regional war. It's been a regional conflict. And the U.S. sort of has its hybrid wars and, and all its proxies attacking the region consistently. I think something that comes to mind for me is, you know, I'm 29 years old and I feel like my whole life since I can remember, the U.S. has been at war. And there's always the other there's always the other that is a terrorist and that is a menace that we you know have to fight and i think interestingly you know 
now in 2024, I don't think that's resonating as strongly with your everyday American as conditions in this country get worse and worse. Um, and I don't think it, you know, it's just like the radical people that are realizing or, or taking the stance. But for me, I'm like, you know, the U.S. is always at war. There's always an enemy that it's looking to fight. It's always draining um, our national budget for the sake of war, for the profit of war. But, it, you know, the U.S. is also a, a big loser in these wars. And I'm curious, you know, how how is that going to play out? You know, what's some of the history of that when the U.S. makes the calculus that it's not going to win a war? What are some of the typical sort of patterns and, and strategies it goes into and how you see it playing out in this moment? Well, that's an excellent question. And it's an excellent question for many reasons. One is, um, you know, it, firstly, you're absolutely right. And I'm very sorry uh, that you're right, which is to say uh, you being 29 years old have lived in the United States uh, while it's been at war all these 29 years. And I, I'm very sorry for that because um, you know, I, I know you, you are a sensitive person, you are an artistic temperament, you are the kind of person that we need more of in the world, um, that, you know, is going to help make the world a better place and so on. And yet, um, the government that you have has decided to prosecute a war right through your life. So I really am very sorry for that. And, and I, I don't mean it in any other way, but with the greatest sincerity that this is not how the world should be. Um, at the same time, during these 29 years of your life, um, the United States has found it very difficult um, to actually, you know, win wars. Um, so, firstly, the United States and its close allies, the NATO countries, North America, uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization countries, these countries have 75% of the global share of military spending. Uh, okay, I just want to repeat that. The United States and its NATO allies are responsible for three quarters of all global military spending, just so that people could have a balance. China it, by itself, one of the world's largest countries, is responsible for 10% of global spending. Um, that's a pretty big gap, 75 to 10. Um, so the US has this incredible armament uh, you know, uh, at its fingertips, incredible ability to destroy countries, bomb anywhere and so on. But the United States doesn't have a political project for the world any longer. You know, and I think this disjuncture is interesting. So you can easily bomb Baghdad or you can easily bomb Fallujah, Ramadi, further afield, you can easily destroy Kabul, you can destroy militaries anywhere in the world, you know touch of a button, the mother of all bombs falls on a pretty rural area of Afghanistan. Nobody really cares what happens there. You know, it's fascinating. Trump dropped this bomb in Afghanistan, and there's been very little discussion about what that's meant. So United States has the capacity to bomb countries as it did with Yemen recently, consistently does in Syria and so on. Um, but having bombed them, uh, then if you send your troops in, as the U.S. did in Afghanistan, in Iraq, um, these two most immediate examples, what are you going to do? What's the project? Um, it actually was quite revealing in Iraq to see what the United States did. Well, the U.S. decided, uh, they sent a 
man who was the viceroy of Iraq, Paul Bremer, to take charge. Um, that, that's a period when you were pretty young. Uh, thank goodness you didn't have to watch the absolute fiasco of the early years of the U.S. administration in Iraq. But the United States goes to Iraq thinking, oh, we're just going to build a free market society, you know, perfect free market society, as if there's not been thousands of years of history in Iraq, as if the Iraqi people don't have their own views of how they should uh, organize their life. So U.S. is going to send a mediocre fellow called Paul Bremer, and they're going to impose a free market society. Well, that didn't turn out very well because the United States completely miscalculated about the thousands of years of Iraqi history. You can't erase that, you know, with a bomb. And then the United States completely miscalculated on the U.S.'s own um, sense of commitment to building such a free market society. You know, U.S. taxpayer wasn't going to uh, fund the rebuilding of bridges destroyed by U.S. bombs. So the United States, therefore, has the capacity as, just to take that image. U.S. has the capacity to destroy a bridge, but it doesn't have the capacity, the you know, understanding of why you would want to rebuild the bridge. And I think that's the reason why uh, the U.S. is losing wars that uh, after it wins battles, um, it, it can it can invade Afghanistan. But then what are you doing sitting there? You don't have a project, a political project for the Afghan people. And I must say this problem of having the capacity to destroy, but not having a political project to build. This problem is there for the Israelis in Gaza. Um, the Israelis, basically, there's some resistance and they are facing some problems. You know, some rockets are hitting their, um, their troops and they are losing some troops and so on. Um, but by and large, the Israelis have an enormous battle advantage. I mean, they are wiping out entire areas. Uh, the day before we are speaking, the Israelis bombed the hospital in Khan Yunus, Nasser Hospital. You know, they, they have a battlefield advantage over the Palestinians at this point. Um, but what's the project, man? If you if you move the 2.3 million Palestinians of Gaza right near the Egypt border, what are you going to do next? I mean, you keep saying we're going to eradicate Hamas, but you don't actually mean eradicate Hamas. You mean remove the Palestinians. What's the next political project? You can win the battle, but you won't win the war. And I can say that with some confidence because the Israelis have fought battles against the Palestinians of Gaza since 2005, 2006, uh, including horrendous bombardments in 2008, 2009, and then 2014, horrendous. Um, you know, I've seen uh, the, the destruction caused by the Israeli battles, and it's, it's extreme. But they couldn't win the war because th there's no political project that they have for the Palestinians. And that, I think, that disjuncture between being able to win battles but not win the war, I think is, is actually not a good thing. It's scary because it means that the United States is pretty happy to use military force whenever um, and often without even thinking uh, and then leave countries in destruction. Um, there's no political project that follows. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible crime that is being committed on the world with almost no self-reflection. Yeah, it, it it is 
this this heartbreak to see how just like the tentacles of imperialism are causing so much unnecessary suffering and you know it is also becoming obvious that the to your point you know the united states is is losing its sort of you know global hegemony you know its position of unquestionable power as we move into more of a multipolar world and you know it, it makes me think the i'm glad that you brought up china because of course in the west um there's just an obsession of misinformation around china and trying to villainize china that you know i'm, I'm curious in this in this sort of political juncture that we're in and it being an election year in this country sort of how are you thinking and assessing what this sort of means, what this moment means in terms of the U.S. losing its relevancy as a global power and, and yeah, what's going to come out of that in the next couple of years? Well, I mean, just to let people know that in late January, um, the Institute I direct, Tricontinental, will release a text which has a, a title, Hyperimperialism. Um, it's probably the most significant text that we've produced. Um, in it, you'll read about, for instance, global share, actual global share of military spending. You'll read about uh, this question of the economic shifts that are taking place in the world. We do a map of what is the global north, what is the global south. We go almost country by country and put them into um, different groupings, how to best understand the situation in the world. Well, that scientific study that we've done has really helped me understand, um, you know, uh, how the world is moving and the changes. So I, I really want to encourage people to go and read that. Um, even if you don't agree with it, uh, engage it, please, because I think it's a really significant study. And it also makes the point that there are not multiple imperialisms in the world. There's an, a neo-colonial structure um, that has been set there from the 19. Um, 40s onward, uh, a neo-colonial structure builds on old colonialism, and that has been managed and maintained by the leading imperialist power in the world, the United States, backed by its NATO G7 um, allies and so on. That, that's the argument. You can't talk about oh, multiple imperialisms. It doesn't exist uh, scientifically. We don't see it. The data doesn't show it. You may not like China, you may not like Russia, but, you know, the word Imperialism is a scientific concept. It's not a moral judgment. Um, so we established pretty scientifically that there is a neo-colonial system with one imperialist power operating. Now, why do I say that? I say that because nonetheless, despite the fact that you have this one imperialist power operating for um, at least two reasons um, from the early 2000s, great shifts have been taking place in the world. Uh, what are the two reasons? One is, we've already talked about it. The United States has kind of militarily overreached itself. It's capable of destroying countries, but doesn't know what to do with them, having destroyed them. So, but it has immense military power, doesn't have a political project for the world. That's one decline. So countries in the global south looking at the fiasco of Iraq, the fiasco of Libya, the fiasco of Afghanistan, the fiasco of dot, 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 Democratic Republic of Congo, you name it. Um, they have sort of begun to lose their sense of the legitimacy of the United States uh, as it poses 
as the most important country in the world. So one is that. Secondly, as a consequence of the United States government's own domestic politics, where it's basically freed up the U.S. elite to do whatever the hell they want. You know, they, they don't need to pay tax. Um, they can they don't need to even um, onshore their wealth. They can offshore their wealth to tax havens and so on. Um, the U.S. government has faced a serious budgetary problem. You can't tax your elite, your big billionaires. Um, they put their money elsewhere. You just can't raise the money you need to run a global imperialist project. I mean, you can't just do imperialism through bombs. You have to also do it through bridges, but you don't have the money. And at the same time as the U.S. simply doesn't have the money to run a global imperialist project, um, you know, in a, in a sustainable way, I don't just mean in a destructive way, the Chinese show up with an enormous surplus and say, oh, listen, we can build bridges. We can do all these other things. So in the global south, now there is an option people have. They don't have to be subordinated to the International Monetary Fund or beg the U.S. government you know, for uh, funds and so on. They have these other options. Well, the increase of the other option at the same time as the lack of legitimacy of the United States as a leading power has created a new mood in the global south. That's the phrase we are using, a new mood. Um, because we don't want to exaggerate the changes. You know, I, I don't think the term multipolarity is yet um, there. I think we are just in a time of a new mood. What's a good indicator of the new mood? The fact that the government of South Africa, a global South country, uh, opened a dispute against Israel at the International Criminal, uh, at the International Court of Justice. I mean, that's incredible. You know, South Africa didn't have the confidence to do this in 2014, didn't have the confidence in 2008, 2009, but had the confidence to do it in 2023, 2024. Not only that, but now the lawyers involved in the case are saying they might bring the United States and the United Kingdom into the International Court of Justice, might open a dispute against them. This is a good sign of the new mood um, with which we are. You know, Germany came in and said, no, no, we agree with Israel. There's no genocide. It's ridiculous, right? Germany made a comment like that. My God, the president of Namibia responded to that with such clarity. Namibia used to be called Southwest Africa. Um, it used to be a German colony during the period of high imperialism. Uh, in 1904, between 1904 and 1908, the German colonial regime in Southwest Africa conducted a genocide of the Herero and Namaqua peoples. Uh, tens of thousands of innocent people were slaughtered by the German colonialists in Southwest Africa. Southwest Africa um, was a core place of national liberation. Um, you know, the movement that led this was, it was the Southwest African People's Organization, SWAPO. Uh, SWAPO fought the apartheid regime in South Africa to gain the independence of then what becomes Namibia. So here's Germany says to the International Court of Justice, no, no, Israel is not committing genocide. I mean, Germany should know what a genocide is. So maybe they have a point because that's where, uh, you know, <coughs> the Holocaust is, an, is engineered by um, the German Nazi regime elected, by the way, to power in 1933. That was not a a coup. Um, Hitler won an election. The German people backed him. Um, and here, uh, that 1933 election victory by Hitler 
comes um, not three decades after the Germans conducted a genocide in Southwest Africa. So the president of Namibia responds to Germany, says, listen, we have not forgotten the genocide against the Herero and Namakwa people. We have not forgotten that. And we think you don't know what you're talking about. Um, you have never apologized for that. And you don't see a genocide when one is happening. We see what's happening to the Palestinians. That's a genocide. Well, it's extraordinary, Nikki, to see um, a country like Namibia stand up there and attack the German government. That's the evidence of the new mood. And we're seeing it across the global south. I gave you two Southern African examples, South Africa and Namibia. I could multiply this, you know, uh, by many fold uh, of this new mood that is coming there, largely because countries are saying we don't have faith in the United States to lead the world order, number one. And secondly, you just don't have the funds uh, to blackmail us anymore into structural adjustment policies and so on. We want to industrialize. We have our own ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really like that phrasing, a new mood, because it feels it feels appropriate. You know, it makes me think of BRICS also and, and seeing how, you know, countries that have historically been seen as small and, and, and not powerful enough to counter the United States and, you know, all the imperialist forms of the global north are now coming together. And, and for me, it's so exciting to see every time that a, another country wants to join BRICS and, and be, be part of that sort of counter moment. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you want to speak on that, but yeah, it feels like there's so many examples right now that, yeah, there is a different mood. I mean, I think, you know, I, I want to leave it at this framework of the new mood. And, and the reason is why I'm not saying, you know, you know, many years ago when people started to say the unipolar order is breaking down, we are entering a multipolar order. I was very hesitant about that um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think the unipolar order is exactly breaking down. I think the neocolonial structure is still exists. I think given that three quarters of the share of global military spending is from NATO and the United States within and outside NATO, um, it shows that unipolarity is still, um, you know, something that exists, that that order exists, the structure exists, even though people might subjectively have moved away. I, I think the term multipolarity um, mis misleads people into believing that the unipolar structure of imperialism has somehow vanished. I, I just I, I think that's a very misleading thing for people to think, you know, that structure is, is intact and remains. That's number one. Secondly, I know that the major countries of the global south um, that have, you know, um, have emerged economically, um, most of them in Asia, you know, India, China, Indonesia, and so on, most of them in Asia, they come from a range of different political orientations. You know, in India, the government is of the very far right. Uh, in China, it's a socialist government. In Indonesia, well, it's a mixed bag, but typically it's a center right to right wing government in Indonesia. Nonetheless, these places now have very major, you know, economies and so on. Um, and the countries of the global south haven't shaped themselves into a block. This is a point that we make in the hyper imperialism study. You know, whereas 
the countries of the global north are in a block. Um, they act together. They are in a block in the group of seven countries to establish economic policy. They are in a block through the NATO alliance to establish military policy. They are in a block through what's called the Five Eyes Network, the intelligence network, but really there are 11 countries in the Five Eyes Network. Um, they have an intelligence sharing arrangement. Uh, this kind of integration of the powers of the global north into a block is just not there in the south. They have different agendas. There's no singular military, economic, or um, intelligence uh, organization. And so to call you know, the economic emergence or this new mood to say, well, they are, they are also blocks, I think is misleading and it's inaccurate. Um, and so I feel like the phrase, the new mood, captures for me where we are now um, and doesn't take us, you know, uh, where perhaps maybe we want to be, which is in a more diverse and less homogenized world, you know, uh, but we're not there yet. Yeah, Vijay, I think that's, you know, I appreciate how sober your assessment is, right? Because I do think these are important distinctions and, and it's necessary to be precise with our language. And yeah, I, I agree that sometimes it's, it's a little hard. You know, I think sometimes I want to feel really filled with, you know, revolutionary optimism and it's sometimes it can be easy to kind of overstate or over exaggerate um, what the actual landscape is and where we actually are versus where we long to be. And that makes me it, it brings me to sort of maybe my last question um, in this moment of so much um, crisis and unfolding of, you know, just genocide and just collapsing empires in a way, where are you, like, sort of where are your seeds of hope and optimism in this moment? Where are you looking towards? Yeah, I mean, what an amazing place to bring us up to this conversation, because <laughs> um, what have we been talking about? I mean, look at the world, you know, you started by asking me about the situation regarding the Palestinians, and then, you know, we we got to the point where I unfortunately dropped on you this statistic about military spending and what a world we're living in, you know. And yet, isn't it quite remarkable that people just keep going on and on? And I don't just mean in a passive way. I mean, they fight on and on. I mean, you know, the reaction of people, not just young people, but a lot of young people too, the reaction of people around the world to the hideousness of what's happening in Gaza is extraordinary. I mean, let's take the case of New York City. Um, it is incredible to see those rolling protests outside the New York Times building, outside this, that, and the other. I mean, you know, this war against the Palestinians is not just prosecuted by the Israelis, but it's backed fully and fundamentally by the United States government and by its cultural institutions. I mean, New York City, it was in New York City, 92nd Street, why? That Viet was going to read from his new book and because he had signed a letter in the London Review of Books decrying the, the high level of civilian casualties, um, the event was canceled and then the staff resigned. Um, the art forum editor was sacked. 
um, the pressure on the universities in New York City to not allow any kind of discussion or dispute. I mean, New York is a bellwether for a lot of these sorts of, um, of, of engagements. Why? Because so much um, English language, particularly, but not only cultural production emerges from that city. And to see rolling protests of people in that city, in, in Washington, in London, in Dublin, um, then you go off to the global south, millions of people in Indonesia, in Turkey, on the streets, across Europe, um, unending, right through the Christmas vacation, uh, the New Year period, those protests didn't slow down. People continued. It's so very important. It gave those protests, I would put on the table, gave the South African government um, the, uh, the, the sense of confidence um, that they can go to the International Court of Justice. Those protests are going to impact um, the thinking of the 15 judges who are now looking at the filing from South Africa and the reply from Israel. I mean, you know, cannot underestimate how important these mass struggles have been to change the mood. And I just want to say one thing about that. You know, every young person um, develops a political life out of great anxiety. You know, uh, when you're young and somebody says, look, let's go to that protest tomorrow. That's scary. I mean, it's frightening to think of yourself having to march down the street you know, you're dealing with your own youthful anxieties, teenage anxieties about your the way you look and how you move and so on. And now you're going to put yourself into a mass demonstration. That's a scary thing. I remember being a teenager, going to my first few demonstrations, becoming part of a big, um, you know, uh, a tidal wave of, of demonstrations. But, you know, the tidal wave of demonstrations is developed when that one person decides I'm going to get on a bus and go to the demonstration or walk down the street to a demonstration and so on. That act is not just about this war. This is the radicalization of generation of people uh, for a very long period of time. This young person, these young people who go on the streets and say free Palestine, ceasefire now and so on, they are going to be at this for the next several decades. They have been radicalized. Um, some may drop out, some may see, think it's futile and so on. That's fine. That happens in the course of human history. But very many millions of people are going to now be part of a movement to make the world a better place. They, they may have come earlier for climate marches and so on, but this is going to radicalize them in a way that they have not experienced before. You know, with climate change, you share the same language as the major political leaders in the world. You know, maybe they don't act on that language, but they are also with the same language. They also say, you know, uh, we are we must save the planet. We've got to cut down on this, that. I mean, everybody speaks the same language on climate change. The question is hypocrisies and so on. Here, you realize you're not speaking the same language. You are saying ceasefire now. And the best that the Western liberals can say is humanitarian pause. Um, that gap is what radicalizes people. So when you ask, Nikki, you know, where do you see hope? Well, hope is not today. Hope is in also what comes. And what comes, I think, is based on the fact that these millions of people have been radicalized, not only um, <clears throat> to have a ceasefire in this war, 
but to change the world. Yeah, that's a beautiful reminder. I think despite it all, it does feel so affirming and it just, it, it gives me a sense of aliveness and humanness to be part of this sort of wave of young people waking up and and reckoning with what what is the truth and what's worth fighting for. Um, so thank you so much for that reminder. Thanks so much for being on the show today and all your clarity and taking the time to just walk us through so much historical context. It's always a pleasure. Nice to be with you. Thanks a lot.